you've got to remember that the reason you started this in the first place is because you loved writing and that will never change no matter how successful or unsuccessful you perceive yourself to be at any one time because believe me every writer no matter where they are in the you know best-selling ranks always believes at some point that they're unsuccessful just go back to the writing and to the love of the writing welcome to rights for women podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to a very special episode of Rights for Women. Today on the convo couch, I have Natasha Lester joining me as a guest for this special Ask Natasha episode. I put a call out out on social media probably a week or two ago now, and thank you to everybody who has sent questions in for me to ask Natasha. I originally wanted to talk to Natasha again. She has been on the podcast before probably a couple of times over the years since Rights for Women has started, and Kel and I chatted to Natasha way back probably three or four novels ago, I think, and we've had her on since, but I wanted to talk to Natasha now that she is doing so amazingly well with her career. She's become a New York Times bestselling international author. And, you know, she has quite a few books under her belt now. I was just looking earlier and counting them up. So we have A Kiss from Mr. Fitzgerald, Her Mother's Secret, The Paris Seamstress, The French Photographer, or also called The Paris Orphan, The Paris Secret, and The Riviera House. So six novels um, under her belt and her career has just skyrocketed in the last couple of years and Natasha is doing brilliantly particularly in the US as well as Australia and also in the UK and across a whole range of different languages that her books have been translated into. So her experience in the publishing world is really growing and she had a fantastic post a little while ago about the whole idea of enduring as an author and being in it for the long haul. And that's something that I'm really interested in, which prompted me to ask her to join me on the Convo Couch today. And then I thought it was a great idea to throw the questions open to the audience and just to see what other people wanted to ask Natasha. You can find her on social media. She's very, very active there and has some fabulous Instagram videos and things about her writing process. But today she's joining me on Rights for Women. So, Natasha, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here again and to be talking to you. Yay. (laughs) I know. I know. It would have been nice for us to actually chat in person in September for your book tour, but, of course, that was not to be. No, I know. I've been missing all my writing buddies on the East Coast, so fingers crossed for next year we'll get to actually sit down and have dinner like we usually do once a year. (laughs) Yeah, that would be lovely. But The Riviera House is out, came out on the 1st of September and, you know, it's been all over the place. I've seen some fantastic uh, posts and reviews and everything on it and, of course, I was lucky to read an early copy of that and it was fantastic. So maybe just for people who have been under a rock or something and haven't heard about it, could you tell us just a little bit about The Riviera House? 
Of course. So the book is about a young woman named Eliane Dufour, who is an art lover. And the book opens in August 1939 when Eliane is working at the Louvre. Um, but once the Germans occupy Paris in June 1940, she's asked to move to a different Parisian art museum, one called the Jeu de Pomme. And on Eliane's very first day of working at that museum, as she approaches the building, she's shocked to see that it's surrounded by armed Nazis. She has no idea why an art museum would need to be guarded by armed soldiers. And then when she walks inside the museum, she sees that gathered in there is a collection of more artwork than any of the largest museums in the world would possibly gather together for an exhibition. She has no idea where the artwork has come from, why it's there, and where it's being sent to. In the museum, she meets a woman called Rose Valland, who was the real-life art spy, and Eliane and Rose work together to track the paintings that the Nazis are stealing from all of the Jewish families in Paris. There's also a contemporary storyline woven in there, which is all set on the French Riviera and ties into a mysterious painting that um, is featured in the Goering catalogue, a catalogue of stolen artworks from the Second World War. Mm -hmm. I have to say it was a fantastic book to read during COVID when none of us can travel. And even though we're travelling back in time, it was just so beautiful to be back in Paris in those pages and, and also in the Riviera, which was something a little bit different for your books too. Yeah, I think I was quite lucky in some ways that there were so many beautiful locations in the book and lots of people have said that, you know, it's been wonderful to be able to travel a little bit vicariously through the pages of the book. You know, obviously it's not quite the same as being there and we would all much prefer <laughs> for it not to be COVID, um, but <laughs> hopefully it offers a little bit of respite anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was lovely. Diversion into the art world rather than the fashion world too with this one. Yeah, I mean, as soon as I read about Rose Valland, I knew I had to write about her and then that would take me in a deep way into the world of art, which I love anyway. So it was mm. hugely fun to research that part of the book. Yeah, it must have been really lovely. And that's a nice little segue into one of the first questions that I have for you today, because this is a little bit of a special episode where I've got a few questions for you and some listeners have sent some questions in. So you have been doing lots of publicity and promo for the Riviera House. So there's there's lots more interviews that people can track down with you about that if they want to go a bit more in depth with the Riviera. But just talking about your inspiration for the Riviera House, you can talk about that book in particular if you like, but where in general do you go to look for your ideas and inspiration for your books? I mostly get the ideas from the research I'm doing for a previous book. So, and, and that's really happened for the last three or four books, I would say, since the Paris Seamstress, I guess. So while I was researching the Paris Seamstress, I started reading an article that was about female war correspondents. And that was where I first came across Lee Miller. Yeah. And and it's for me, I suppose it's, you know, you're reading something that a million other people could read and they just would read it as an interesting article, but there's something in that article that sparks off that idea generating part of my brain and it makes me want to know more. And it's usually I'm finding the woman in those um, mm. articles. And so another book that I have on my bookshelf is How the Women of Paris Lived, Loved and Died in the 1940s by Anne Sever. And that in that book, I read about Catherine Dior for the first time and also about Rose Valland for the first time. And so Catherine Dior is a character in The Paris Secret and Rose is a character in The Riviera House. So I think that's for me really where I'm getting one part of the inspiration from 
because, of course, the books cover a few other aspects and elements as well. But, you know, again, I read about the female pilots that are in the Paris Secret when I was researching the French photographer. So that's generally where things tend to come up for me now. Yeah, in the research. So generally, would you then get the inspiration for the historical timeline and your historical characters and then think, okay, what sort of modern timeline can I weave into? That makes it sound like I have planned an organised process. <laughs> no, I think it's more so like with the Riviera House, I suppose. So I found out that Rose Valland had worked as a spy in the Jeu de Pomme during the Second World War and had recorded all the details of the Nazis' art thefts. And then at the same time, I just, I think I was just doing a general Google, which I sometimes do, a bit of a mm. rough Google around the subject. And I stumbled across uh, the Goering catalogue, which is Hermann Goering's catalogue of the artworks that were stolen for his personal private art collection during the Second World War. And I hadn't heard of that catalogue. And in that article, I read about this link between the catalogue and Rose Valland, who I had already decided to write about. So that immediately made me think, oh, okay, I wonder if there's something I can do with this catalogue because it was published in 2015 in contemporary times. So that immediately gave me the time frame for a potential contemporary storyline and it made me think, oh, what if there was this stolen painting that was in the catalogue that a contemporary character had unknowingly inherited and didn't know the provenance of. So it's more of a, I don't know, alchemical, mysterious, weird kind of process where, and it's always like this for me, it's like two or three seemingly random disconnected ideas suddenly join themselves somehow in my brain and my brain says, oh, I could make a story out of those. And then it's a matter of working out, well, how the hell are you going to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Which brings me to my next question. Oh, I'm so good at these segues, aren't I? <laughs> you are. <laughs> About your writing process that you, you say is, you know, a little bit hodgepodge, but I, I think it might be a little bit more organised than that. <sighs> if you think back, has your writing process changed? So I think you're up to novel, what are you writing now, number seven or eight? It must be or, seven I'm more. editing and eight I'm writing. I mean, we all learn things as we go along. It doesn't necessarily mean we change, but would you say that your writing process is vastly different now to when you you started off with your first couple of novels? It's probably vastly different to my very first two books, which weren't historical. It's probably fairly similar to how it has been since A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, which was my first historical. So when I very first started, I did a lot of writing by hand and I think I needed to do that just to kind of learn to write and become a better writer I don't know and there was something about the mind hand connection that Mm. got me into the flow more easily and I think really importantly enabled me to capture the voice of the piece and I think that's you know voice is so hard for beginning writers and it's so hard to teach as a concept so hard to explain and describe but that really helped me to do that so that then voice kind of almost became a a natural and intrinsic part of the writing process that I didn't need to kind of court or yeah and so then I don't you know from a kiss from Mr Fitzgerald onwards I haven't handwritten much at all 
I do handwrite a lot of notes that occur to me, ideas that occur at random times, you know, when I'm running or in the kitchen washing dishes or in the shower. So I, I do still have lots of handwritten pieces of paper, but I don't write scenes out as such. So that's probably one of the biggest changes. But I've used Scrivener since A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald and I still use Scrivener and I still use that in pretty much the same messy and chaotic way where the first draft is literally just a, a long list of disordered scenes that I'm just, you know, bashing out and hoping for the best and the structuring usually comes much later. So no, I probably do less drafts now. Like I often tell the story that my very first book, so which was a contemporary kind of literary novel, I did 13 drafts of that before it got picked up for publication. Wow. I don't do 13 drafts anymore because um, I don't have the time. Uh, and, and also I think I've <laughs> got a little bit better at doing You've less You've learned drafts. a lot since then, yeah. 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 So it's a bit more compressed, I suppose, the process because you learn. I didn't know about plot back then. I feel Mm. like I've learned about that now. So I'm more able to incorporate plot points just naturally as I'm writing without thinking about it. With if that makes sense, I don't have to consciously go. Oh, I need a midpoint. In fact, I never even really knew what that was until a couple of years ago. (laughs) But it's like, oh, I have one of those. (laughs) Yeah, but that is the thing, isn't it? I think a lot of this stuff is subconscious for everybody you know whether you're a writer or not even when you're watching a movie or you're reading a book you sort of subconsciously know ah this is a really important turning point in the story so so when you're writing you're incorporating that in into your writing as well yeah I think so I think you know if you read widely you take on and it becomes innate what readers expect of a story and so when you sit down to write a story you bring all of that to your own and so Mm -hmm. you just know that okay, things have been a little bit slow or boring, something's got to happen now. And those things generally become those turning points and midpoints and that sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm probably a bit more organised about it now. But, but yes, it is still, for me, very much a, a process of gut instinct and it has always been that. And I did try to plan a little bit more out my book for next year and I, I don't know whether I'll do that again. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I I do like the gut instinct way of writing. I think that it, if what you're writing surprises you, then hopefully it surprises the reader. You know, I don't go on to good reads. I, I probably used to, you know, when my first couple of books came out, but you learn quickly not to do that. Yeah. But it's always, you know, if someone points out a review or something and readers say, oh, I guess the twist really early on, I don't know why the author plotted that out. It always amazes me with crime authors, you know, when they say, oh, I, d- I don't plan it out. Yeah. I don't actually know who committed the, the murder or the crime until yes. I find out when I'm writing it. And, that, yeah. and Solari, I think Gentile is one of those authors. And yeah. I, that's really amazing to me. I that know. Something well, that seems to be so intricately plotted, it just comes out naturally, you know. I remember listening to Michael Robotham say the same thing. Like I assumed, like you, that if you're writing a, you know, a crime novel, you've got to know who did it. But he's just like, no, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> amazing. I don't feel quite so bad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I think everyone has their own process. And if if something works for you, like, why change it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think that's half the battle when you're starting out is working out what your process is and tr- just trusting to the process that seems to be working without thinking, oh, I shouldn't do that because so-and-so doesn't do that. It's like, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter what anybody else does, just do what works for you. Yeah, do the trial and error and see, yeah. and see where it takes you. In a recent video you had on Instagram, 
you um, had your messy desk with all your piles of pages and your dead flowers and things like that, which was really reassuring to see. And the three piles were three different storylines that you were, you know, working your way through. Mm-hmm. How do you go about constructing your um, timelines and your different points of view in terms of the writing of the novel? And at what point do you do them separately? At what point do they come together? So in the first draft, it's all separate. And I, if I'm writing sort of a dual narrative, then it's always the historical storyline that I write first because that's usually for me the longest storyline. It's the heart of the story. So I need to know what's happening there before I can then layer a contemporary storyline into that. The one I'm running now has got three storylines because I thought that would be a good idea. <laughs> I don't think so anymore. Of course you did. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, in fact, interesting for that one, I wrote the contemporary storyline first because oh. um, it's a bit of a different kind of story um, to my usual. I think, you know, you've got to change and evolve sometimes. So that's the first time I've done that. So... But generally it is the historical. And so first draft, no weaving together. It's literally in Scrivener, a big long list of scenes, all the historical ones, then all the contemporary ones. And then I don't really do much structuring in the second draft because for me the second draft is a lot of layering in the research. And also because I don't know what the story is and what the end is going to be, I've got a lot of tidying up to do because now I have the story in this first draft form, so now I've really got to tidy it up. So it's probably the third draft when I start to, you know, in Scrivener, I love the colour coding in the Scrivener binder. Yeah. You know, it, my documents are all colour coded, so one timeline will be one colour, another timeline will be another colour, and often there are a couple of different point of view characters. They will have their own colours too so I can make sure that, you know, if you have a point of view character, you can't just have them appear once or twice. They've got to be a little bit more yeah. consistent so I can track whether they're appearing too often or not often enough at a glance. Um, yeah, so you're just getting that visual of the different colours and where they sort of weave in together. Yeah, Exactly. And even because with my books there's always the storyline of a woman trying to do something a bit unusual for her time in history, but there's also a bit of a love story happening as well. So yeah. I sometimes even colour code the the scenes where the two um, lead characters in that love story are interacting together so I can, again, make sure that that's not dominating the storyline or it's not being forgotten about. I haven't, you know, left it for three chapters and then it's like, oh, we need to bring that storyline yeah. in. <laughs> that's often colour-coded too so I can see where that's falling in. That really works for me because there's so much going on often in the books that you need to be able to kind of look quickly and go, okay, this is how the alternation of timelines, point of views, subplots is all working um, Mm. and it makes it easier to then kind of see where the gaps are or where you've gone a bit overboard because sometimes, you know, you fall in love with one part of the story and you just write too much. So it pretty much works like that. Yeah. Thank God for Scrivener, eh? I know. I don't know what people do without (laughs) that. I'm just like I can't even imagine writing in Word, especially with the amount of moving around of scenes I do, just all that cutting and pasting. I probably, you know, I feel like I would lose scenes occasionally. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I've used Scrivener too probably for about the last four or five books, but I still don't feel like I I use it the way I should. You know, like I think there's a lot more that I can use. Like it was only two books ago that I learned about colour coding. Yeah, right. Um, oh, yeah. wow, that's my favourite. Look, I even, I'm sh- I know there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't use that I might be able to use. It, I think that program is so jam-packed with features yeah. that 
you know, I don't know that anybody uses all of it. Yeah, yeah true. I mm. keep meaning to do a tutorial in it, but, um, you know, yeah. it's on the list. <laughs> um, I've got a question from Cheryl Rosario, who is a great listener and supporter of the podcast. Shout out to Cheryl. What strategies do you use when the story and the writing aren't quite connecting? No, I don't sorry. know. I think maybe does she mean by that? I think see, maybe you've got the idea of the story in your head, but when you write it down, it's it not what you thought. Maybe. Yeah, okay. I mean, in some ways, because I don't really know where the story's going, <laughs> then the writing yeah. is take it wherever. But, I mean, obviously, you know, with my books, there are some hallmarks, I suppose you might call them, where there is always this woman doing something unusual for her time mm. in history. So, so I know I've got to follow her journey and that she has to face obstacles and, you know, hopefully triumph in the end or die is the case by yeah. me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, um, no. If you've read my books, you'll know why I'm making that funny, funny joke. So I suppose it's just that, I don't know, I don't ever sit and think too much about the actual writing. The writing mm. for me is more that gut instinct. Like it's mm. particularly because for me in that first draft, I'm I'm writing really fast. So I would try and write that first draft in, like it's usually one school term. So let's call it 12 weeks roughly. Yeah. And then I spend the rest of the year rewriting. So it's really quick. I don't think too much about it. I don't ever spell check it. I don't even print my first draft out because it's so messy and so mm. There are typos all through it. So I think that maybe if you overthink the writing, that can get in the way of the story perhaps. So I want the story to just unfold and come out. So to do that, I just have to write as fast as I can and not worry about prose style, which then makes it sound like I'm writing really bad prose as well. But, um, But, I mean, you work on a lot of that in revision too, don't you? Yeah, and I do also think that, you know, maybe the more you write, the better your writing becomes so that, you know, I like I regularly, like once I've done the first draft, I'll put it away for a couple of weeks over the school holidays and come back to it. And I think, oh, God, this is going to be a piece of crap. And then I'll, you know, I'll read sentences and go, wow, I'm a genius. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. Um, I don't really think I'm a genius, but, you know. <laughs> oh, every now and then I reckon we all have those moments. So yeah. you read a couple yeah. of sentences and you think, oh, yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, and you read the next one, it's like, oh. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So I think that you've got to trust your writing. You've got to trust that you can write a damn good sentence and you've got to go where the story wants to go and let the writing let you do that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that helps. Like that. A little added bit to that question from me. I know you don't plot, but do you do any sort of character descriptions or notes or anything before you start? I used to, but I haven't done that for quite a few books and quite a few years now because I feel like for me that first draft is a lot of that stuff. Like I'm learning the characters and discovering them and, you know, there'll always be quite a lot of scenes in that first draft and even subsequent drafts that don't make it into the final book. And usually those are a lot of scenes that have come out of the research that, you know, there's been some fascinating piece of research that I really want to get in the story, but it has no relevance whatsoever to the book. But it helps me a 
learn the character because she's in yeah. a different situation so I can see what she does in that situation and it also just helps me crystallize and consolidate what was going on in that time period so then I can decide okay what were the really important things that I need to have in the book not just the things that I'd like to have in the book because it could be 200,000 words long <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I guess yeah the first draft now is the place where I do a lot of that stuff and then refine all of that in subsequent drafts. So you have quite long first drafts. Yeah, they are. I mean, I just about died on the book I'm writing now. The first draft came in at like 158,000 words. I was like, oh, no, no, no. That's my longest. Like, that's my record-breaking first draft. Seriously. <laughs> I was like, no. and because normally they get longer in the second draft when I add all the research in. So I was literally having a heart attack. It's down to about 150 now. So I've still got, you know, 20,000 words to cut. Yay. <laughs> oh, you've cut eight. Well done. Okay. So this is, this is another one that I, I wanted to ask you. You know, since... We did speak earlier on the podcast, be going back a couple of years ago now, and then I think a year or two before that, you have had a lot of international success. Your books are selling really nicely in America and across a number of different countries and languages and things like that. Having those sort of multiple pu publications and multiple publishers, how has that affected your, I guess, your process and just your life in general? So it's affected my life in that I just... Uh, particularly this year, I think I just feel like there's never enough time. And I know we always feel like that, mm. but, you know, every year I'm hiving things off because there literally isn't enough time. So in January, I just deleted my Twitter account. It was like, I can't do that anymore. And, you know, I used to teach a lot more, so I've had to stop all of that. So, which is a shame because I like, I didn't like mm. Twitter. I like teaching. I'd take the yeah. teaching back before I took Twitter back. So it's just, you just start to have to say no to things. And, you know, I get a lot of requests from authors to read their book for a, an endorsement quote. And, and I love to do that because I remember what it was like when I was starting out mm. and I would have given anything for a writer to give me an endorsement quote. And, and so I do do a lot of those and I try to, but, you know, I've just had to say to my agent last month, I can't, I'm not taking any more until next year. I'm just I'm yeah. literally, I'm drowning. <laughs> and, yeah. and she knew I was drowning anyway. So she'd kind of preempted that for some people anyway. So I think that's the change that you have to start saying no for your own sanity. And mm. no one likes saying no, particularly when you're saying no to other writers, you know, there are only so many hours in the day. So so that side of things has changed. And there was a second part to your question, which I've totally forgotten. What was oh, just, well, I guess just <laughs> in terms of, so that's like your general life and scheduling yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of, you know, the actual writing and, and getting the writing done and fitting fitting that in with all the, the other demands on your time, I guess. Yeah, so I was lucky this year because we had 18 months between the books because we decided to move the publication date. So it meant that, you know, I had a bit more breathing space and a bit more time and I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, really, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast, but what the hell, let's just go. You know, to be honest, there will be a point in the very near future where I'm only going to be putting out a book every couple of years because I can't, you just can't keep doing one a year, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago I had a 6am event here in Perth time it was an online virtual event for the US so that was 6pm eastern states time but I'd been up till midnight that in fact I had an event that started at midnight the night before for oh. Sweden so it's just you know there are as well as the writing day then suddenly you know because midnight in Sweden is 6pm their time I think the time difference was six hours and then 
then you've got to be up again back online at 6am for the US. So there's all these other things that take place that I guess people don't know so much about. You know, there's a lot of extra pressures on your time, as well as just the intricacies of when you have readers from all around the world you do have to think a little bit about that when you're selecting the next book idea, I suppose, you know, which is hard for me because I don't, you know, some writers have a drawer full of ideas and I never have that. I literally have, you know, maybe one, maybe two ideas top. So yeah, I, I don't like to have to reject a book idea or have someone <laughs> reject that book idea because then I'm like, oh, what am I going to write? So there's all those sorts of things that you've got to think about as well. Yeah. yeah. And I was just thinking as you were saying that, well, doing this sort of thing and and being able to do author interviews with people on the other side of the world at any time of the day, you know, on Zoom and all that sort of thing. It's fantastic in a way. You know, even going back a couple of years ago, certainly five years ago, that didn't happen for for authors, you know, like that actually wasn't a possibility. So that was less demand on your time that way. But now it's kind of expected, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to say that good things have come out of the pandemic, but, mm-hmm. you know, three years ago, if my publisher had said to an American bookstore, let's do an online event with this Australian author, they would have gone, no way, no one's going to come and watch an online event. Whereas now the online events are the thing to do, even mm-hmm. for authors based in America, because they're still not really wanting to go out and do face-to-face events. So, so yes, there are those sorts of things. And of course, I totally am, I'm very lucky to be asked to do yeah. for international audiences and that's all fantastic and you know I wouldn't change that so I don't want that to seem like I'm complaining about yeah, the yeah. or anything like that but certainly you know writing isn't just writing there are lots of other things that go along with it and in line with that there are lots of decisions that you have to make about how you can fit that into your life like I try to preserve my daytime hours because I write best in those hours and then do things like this interview we're doing sort of you know it's 5 p.m my time 8 p.m your time because it's outside my writing hours so I'm not I'm not you know eating away at that kind of quite precious time so you have to really guard that time otherwise it just doesn't happen does it it evaporates it honestly does and you watch it go and you think oh my god it's been two weeks and I've not written a single thing (laughs) I know that feeling yeah (laughs) (laughs) um Here's another question. I think it came from someone in, in my writing group, the Inkwell, so one of the writing buddies. You've covered a lot of different topics in your books, you know, over the time you've been writing from sort of women breaking into to traditional male workplaces and breaking the boundaries of the society that they live in, striking out in dangerous situations, the concentration camps, and a lot more, of course, than the ones I've mentioned. Is there anything that you have ever been going to write about and you've shied away from or is there anything in your mind that you think I would never write about that topic or go there's not been so much that I have wanted to write about and haven't I've certainly been conscious of you know particularly with writing about the concentration camps because I know there are readers that say I won't read a a book with a concentration Mm. camp in it it's too heartbreaking it's too sad and I can't do it but you know they're a fact of life and I think only by understanding what happened there can we avoid hopefully it ever happening again. So I think it is important to write about those things, but to bear in mind, you know, that readers will find it difficult, just as it's difficult to research and to write about. So always I want to be true to the, the atrociousness of war but in a way that makes the reader able to read through those scenes because if the reader can't read those scenes, then I've kind of failed in my objective Mm. of 
you know, making those things more visible to people. So, so you, I do approach those scenes with that trying to be true to the events, but aware of reader sensitivities around reading about those kinds of topics as well. And <laughs> there are things that you do talk about and think about with your publisher. Um, so, for example, in the Riviera House, the main character in the contemporary storyline has suffered a personal tragedy at the start of the book, and we talked a little bit about whether that tragedy would be too difficult for readers or not. I felt that my readers would all be okay with that, and I haven't had any, well, I mean, quite possibly there have been people who started to read and, and haven't been able to read it, but it doesn't take place on the page. It happens prior to yeah, that's right. yeah. starting the book. So I feel like that helps and and that's you know what she went through is really important to that part of the story so I couldn't not have that so you've got to think about those things but then that was the that was the story that I had in my mind and I you can't always compromise the story for the readers because it's impossible actually to judge how the reader is going to respond so I think for all writers it's a matter of you know no just sit down and write the story that you feel like is the right story and the one that you have to write and the right readers will find that story, I think. Yeah, I think that's great advice. You wrote a post a little a while ago, probably a couple of months ago now, on Facebook about enduring. <laughs> and you've mentioned that again recently in an Instagram post. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about this whole idea of enduring as an author and possibly something associated with that, which is resilience. Yes, so the idea of Endurability is something that I read about in Danny Shapiro's book, Still Writing, which if anyone out there is listening and is a writer and hasn't read that book, go and grab a copy because it's one of my most treasured. Oh, haven't you? Oh, you must no, have I haven't read it yet. Yeah, yeah no, I need to get I, it. Yeah. It's one of my favourite of all writing books. It's not about the how to craft a character. It's, it's about the psychology of being a writer, I guess. Mm. And so she talks in there in one chapter about the idea of endurability and how she stood in front of many writing classrooms and knows that it's not always going to be the most talented students in her writing class or the most ambitious students in her writing class who are the ones that are still going to be writing 10, 20 years later. It's the ones who cultivate the idea of endurability, the ones who keep going no matter what. And I love that idea because it's so true. And, you know, like I said in my Facebook post recently, you know, the writing life is a roller coaster. You know, you can be a best selling author and there are still downs that happen in your writing mm. career. You can be an author who, and you feel like you're on the down, but you never know when the roller coaster is about to go up. And I've had that happen to me many times before. So you have to be prepared to weather it all. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because, you know, we strive for this idea of success, but actually success isn't the thing that makes us happy because, you know, we think, okay, getting the agent is going to make us happy, but then we get the agent and then we need the publisher and then we think, okay, that's going to make me happy, you know, and then we think, I've achieved my dream, I've got my book published, but then all of a sudden, no, now I want it to be a bestseller. And then so it isn't a bestseller, so we're disappointed. But actually, if we look a year ago, all we did wanted was the agent and now we've surpassed (laughs) that goal and we're still not happy. And, you know, I'm so guilty of this and that's why I think it's it's human nature, isn't it? You know, you sort of get to, it's like going up a set of steps. You get to one step and then, oh, I'm here now. Oh, okay, I want to go to the next step and the next step, you know. So I think it's human nature regardless of what career or, you know, pastime you pursue anything really in life. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why, you know, the endurability thing is so important because you've just got to remember that every step that you take is something to be happy about and actually Mm. do stop and be happy and enjoy that moment because very soon you're going to be, you know, unhappy with that thing and wanting something else. So, yeah, I think for me it's all about knowing that I have got through dark, difficult moments before I've been rejected. I've been badly reviewed, as we all know, from a couple of weeks ago, like the worst review you could ever possibly read about your book. And I'm laughing about it. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) you know, there is a lot of of crap that you've got to go through. And you've got to remember that the reason you started this in the first place is because you loved writing. And that will never change, no matter how successful or unsuccessful you perceive yourself to be at any one time. Because believe me, every writer no matter where they are in the you know best-selling ranks always believes at some point that they're unsuccessful just go back to the writing and to the love of the writing and that's where you have to be resilient is to keep sitting down every day and going no that's right I do this because I love to write not because I'm trying to achieve that goal or that goal or that goal and you know I'm saying all this stuff and you know some days I have to really tell myself this too so it's not like I'm wise and and able to do this every day yeah some self-talk yeah that we yeah it is and we all need to do it I mean that's yeah to keep going you know I would say that for writers starting out you know, the mind games don't unfortunately get easier. I'm going to say that they maybe they actually get a bit harder. So, again, I think it's good to be prepared for that, to not think that at some point I'm going to be really confident every time I sit down to write. I'm not going to have any self-doubt. I'm not going to be fearful of how my book is going to be received. You're probably going to be all those things on an even crazier level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so then what do you do? to push through that like you know like do you have those moments where I'm sure you do where you sit down and you're about to write and those voices come into your head you know whether it's from the review or from yourself or from some some other you know little gremlin up there do you just Um, basically try and block them out and just go for the for it with the writing or I do so there's a few things I suppose that I do the first thing I always remember Elizabeth Gilbert's advice in her book Big Magic where she talks about that fear or self-doubt whatever you want to call it will always be there it will be your constant running companion Mm. and you've got to pretend like it's a passenger in the car and you just let it buckle itself in next to you every time you sit down and go on the writing journey and it will chatter away like the radio, the background music, and it will try and interject things into the conversation. And you just have to acknowledge that it's there, let it say it's peace, but never let it take hold of the steering wheel. Mm. And I really like that advice. You know, you are always holding on to the steering wheel and deciding the direction of the car whilst fear is simply your passenger. So I try to remember that. Um, I run a few times a week and I think that's really good to have. I mean, not just because we spend so much time sitting at the desk and we need to exercise our backs, but I do think some kind of physical activity is really good for a writer. It's that active sort of meditation. You know, there's something about repetitive, mindless activities that (laughs) keep the, 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 (coughs) the brain turning over. And I also think that having a group of close writing friends who you can just say all the stuff to that you would never say to anybody else is really, really important. So 
Um, I've got three great writing friends that I meet with every fortnight and, you know, we talk about all the stuff that. <laughs> yeah, we do too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If anyone recorded our conversations, we'd probably sound terrible. But, you know, it's just, you know, like with any profession you need to unload. And I think particularly with writing because you're, you're putting your heart and soul into every mm. book, you know. Someone tells you you're a, you know, it's badly written like that cuts your heart and soul let me tell you so you have to be able to say that to people who understand how that feels I think Mm. so I think that's really important for writers too yeah no great advice Natasha I'm just making sure I've covered all the questions before we get on to the Patreon one oh there's another one from Fiona Taylor who is a listener of the podcast she said I love Natasha's books and hearing her talk about writing so I'm really looking forward to this could I please ask Natasha what advice would she give and this is I guess something that you've touched on maybe with your last answer what advice would you give to your emerging writer self when you were first writing now that you're a best-selling author and Michelle Barakoff had the same question actually (laughs) hi Michelle and Fiona so I think the advice I would give to my self is just to literally keep going like I remember it was the start of 2018 so January 2018 and I was sitting at my kitchen bench downstairs at school holidays. So my three kids were running around the house making a lot of noise. And I hadn't written over the school holidays. That so was like a month. I hadn't written a single thing. The Paris just was coming out here in Australia in March that year and in the US for the first time, my first US publication in September. And, you know, so I'd had two historical novels come out and they'd both sold fine, you know, but they hadn't set the world on fire and, I certainly wasn't making a living out of writing. And so I was sitting at my kitchen bench going, oh, my God, what am I doing? You know, I could go back and get a job in marketing and I would have way more money. You know, I wouldn't be sitting here when my three kids were running around screaming because I'd be in an office <laughs> and I'd be in much nicer clothes because <laughs> I think I had on like, you know, really crappy old T-shirt at the time or something like that. And I really thought, you know, maybe I should stop. Maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. And But I came back to, no, but I love writing so much. I'll just stick at it for a bit longer. And, you know, thank God I did because the Paris Angels came out in the US that year. And I don't know why still to this day it just sold like way more books than any of my books has ever sold. Like it, ridiculous. Mm. And I had never anticipated that. Like I honestly thought my book would sell three copies because why would anyone in the US buy a book by an Australian author and it would get returned and that would be my US writing career over and done with. And the opposite happened. And I think, my God, what if I had in January at my kitchen beds given up? And that would never have happened, you know. So you just never know what's around the corner. So Mm -hmm. keep going and keep writing And the luck will find you. Writing is hard work, it's talent, but it is also luck. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we get on to do our four curly questions for the Patreon supporters, just to finish this this particular episode up, what are you working on now and how is it going? (laughs) So I'm working on the book for next year in inverted (laughs) commas because it has no title. We are hopefully in the process of nutting out a title for that book as we speak. So it's about about a couple of things. So firstly, I was really interested with this one in writing about women after the Second World War 
because I focused a lot on women during the war, but actually immediately post-Second World War was a huge time of change for women, particularly Mm. women who'd been doing really important things uh, in the wartime services and were suddenly told, you know, there were propaganda campaigns, particularly in the US, basically advocating for women to leave their jobs to the returning men and to return to the home and and cook roast dinners for their husbands. And uh, I still think, you know, how would that feel if you were, you know, doing something really important, crucial for your country's safety and security during the war, and now you're being told to stop doing that. It's not your place anymore. Your place is in the home. So I wanted to write about that and how that would feel for women at that time. So the main character is the um, public relations director for the House of Christian Dior, the newly opened House of Christian Dior, in February 1947 in Paris. And there's also a second storyline that isn't contemporary this time. It takes place during the war in Switzerland and Italy, which are two theatres of war, even though Switzerland was neutral, it was a theatre of war that have been underwritten about. So it's been a lot of fun. I've loved writing that book. I'm just in the middle of editing it now, so it's a little bit thorny as always, but I do love it despite the thorniness. (laughs) Oh, nice for you to cover some new territory there too, geographically and in all the other ways that you just mentioned as well. Yeah, it is nice. And I think, you know, you've got to do that for your own, you know, your own interest as a writer. And, you know, I think for readers as well, you know, nobody wants to write the same book over and over again, just as nobody wants to read the same book over. Well, all the best with it, Natasha. And we are going on to have our very quick four curly questions chat for the Patreon supporters. So thank you for for doing this special Ask Natasha episode. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Pam. And hello and thank you to everyone listening. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>